have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum! Astral Radio Z is a horror, cult, exploitation film podcast by filmmakers, critics, musicians, journalists, and fans for the film obsessed. Here is your host, Derek Terry. Welcome listeners to another episode of Astro Radio Z. Yes, we are back. No, Andy Milligan didn't end the podcast again. We're back. We're going to talk about Nightbirds and Flesh Pot on 42nd Street tonight. Vaughn and Evan are here. So, Vaughn, how are you doing tonight? Besides my own personal life, I'm doing fantastic. Uh, Evan, <laughs> you, how are you doing? You. Uh, <laughs> I would say, consistent with these movies, just hopeless. Just <laughs> what a hopeless week it's been watching these movies for the first time. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm very interested to hear what the meaning behind this statement is. Um, <laughs> I was I was hoping for better things to come out of your mouth. Oh, I mean, no, <laughs> these two I, I would compared say- to compared to the shocking revelation that you thought. I mean, if you think these are bad and you thought uh, the rats are coming, the werewolves are here. We're okay movies. I I just don't even know what world I'm on. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a pretty stark juxtaposition. I'm glad we we're doing these at a, as a pair compared to the previous pair. I mean, I will say that there's there's nothing to laugh at in these movies. Absolutely zero to laugh at. We're now moving on to a phase of Andy Milligan's career where Andy Milligan started. Moving away from the horror, at least for a little bit, at least with these two movies, he's moved away from the horror and he's back to where he was with Vapors. And I'm hoping early nobody will ever know because most of these movies are are lost. A lot of his early stuff, I have a feeling, was more in this vein as well. More drama, slice of life, cinema verite films. Yeah dealing with relationships and people that live on the outskirts of society. So tonight, the two movies we're going to talk about night birds made in 1970 and flesh pot on 42nd street made in 1973. But before we get to talking about those, let's take a break. And our good friend, Daniel Edenfield's going to talk about some really shitty action movies. So uh, stick around. Looks like we're done. I'm Daniel, and this is the bottom rack. 
Hello, welcome to the Bottom Rag, bottom shelf entertainment for your top shelf lifestyle. I'm Daniel. Well, my name's Daniel, but my friends call me Daniel. And uh, sorry about the fighting earlier. Had to uh, just clear up some stuff real quick. One thing that I have found that I love, and this is just the kid in me, maybe, maybe, maybe not, but I've also found that other people are much the same way, much like my friend Derek, who you might know him from all the gimmicks and Astro Radio Z. My buddy Derek and I have, there's like this universal agreement that we have is I will sit there and watch anything with Jean-Claude Van Damme kicking people in the face for 90 minutes. It just, it is, I'm game. I don't care what it is. I really don't like one of my favorite action films is Cyborg. I just, this Van Damme for 90 minutes kicking people in the face. I love it. Throwing some robots and we're good to go. I remember there's trailers like certain trailers when I was a kid growing up. One trailer that I used to see uh, that I saw several times in different movies that I would rent and stuff. This is the film was from 1991. So whenever the trailer hit, I'm not sure, but that film was called The Perfect Weapon. So here's The Perfect Weapon from 1991. Jeff, a young delinquent, is enrolled by his father in a Kenpo school in the hopes of teaching the boys some self-discipline. Years later, Jeff's mentor, Kim, is being threatened by, wow, what a horrible synopsis. Oh, what a stupid one. Let's see. Okay, we'll try it again. Jeff, a young delinquent, is enrolled by his father in a Kenpo school in the hopes of teaching the boys some self-discipline. Years later, Jeff's mentor, Kim, is being threatened by one of the Korean mafia families. Jeff tries to help his old friend, but is too late to prevent Kim's death at the hands of an unknown hitman. Vowing revenge, Jeff takes on all of the families, using his martial arts skills to find the man who killed his friend. That was pretty lame synopsis, I must say. That wasn't the official one. I don't know what the official one is. So, The Perfect Weapon, starring Jeff Speakman. Let's go ahead just check this cover out. No gun, no knife, no equal. <laughs> I'm, okay, that's even better than the, the synopsis on IMDb. Hold on, let's get some music here, like some, you know, some punch and stuff. Like no gun, no knife. Oh, no equal. Ah! Jeff Speakman, the perfect weapon. Just try him. Like, all of this is on the cover. And so you've got this menacing looking Chinese dude, or I think he's actually Hawaiian. I'm not sure. I'll get to that in a second. But then on. Like in the foreground, you've got Jeff Speakman with the whirly burly sticks, the Kenpo sticks, because that's like his martial arts specialty, and he's staring at the camera. Like, I just remember this trailer. I saw it several times, the trailer, and it just looked so cool. It was nothing but kicks and punches. I even refer to this just to people. It's like this dude looks like he knows how to pass out knuckle sandwiches and boot sandwiches to to boot <laughs> so come to find out all right so it stars jeff speakman who is a martial arts badass and some of the other stars we got john die and mako who we know from conan he was the wizard from conan james hong mr lopan himself mariska hargitay 
I know, a young Mariska Hargitay. Some other people that like you might recognize or whatever. And whatever his, okay, Professor Toru Tanaka as Tanaka in this movie. Uh, they don't really call him by a name in this, but you would know him, but everybody knows him as Sub-Zero from The Running Man. He is the hitman in this movie. I just remember the trailer of this film. It's like you got Jeff Speakman running around punching people and then a couple of quick edit punches and then some more kicks and then like some spin kicks, a couple of whirlings with the stick and then you see him walking up to that big dude and he's like walking up to Sub-Zero and just like, and just punches him and like Sub-Zero, he just shakes it off and it goes right at him again this trailer was so cool so i just felt compelled to watch this movie (laughs) i love this movie (coughs) highlights of this film i have never seen a pair of jeans fit a man so perfectly in my life and you know what i am perfectly fine saying that (laughs) ladies if you're gonna watch this movie you're gonna know exactly what i'm talking about holy crap I mean, he's walking around with cowboy boots, beating the shit out of people left and right. And them pants just fit perfectly, like spin kicks and leg sweeps and front kicks and stuff. I just it, it it's really a sight to behold, honestly, because nothing rips, nothing tears other than other people's faces. Like I just had to mention that. Anyway, so you got Jeff Speakman who's in this movie it kind of does like an american ninja type thing like that's nothing bad believe me (laughs) it kind of does like an american ninja thing where jeff speakman is and his name in the movie is jeff that's kind of cool i forget his last name it's like radivass or something but sanders that's what (laughs) that's what it was jeff sanders so anyway jeff sanders is visiting or However, it is that he ends up going back to visit home. So he's on a long car ride. Well, that long car ride, and I'm thinking it's San Francisco. I don't, I don't know if it ever actually tells you or not. Doesn't matter. Who cares? I'm not watching it to, for that. <laughs> he's in his car, and that's when he has his little memory flashbacks about where he came from. And so you find out that he was a bit of a problem child, just, you know, hot headed and getting into trouble. But you also find out that his mom was gone and his dad was a cop. And so you had the usual stereotypical stuff that happened in the 80s, the busy dad. And so the two, the older brother and the younger brother were just trying to cope with everything. So anyway, the younger brother's a hothead. And so eventually his dad just tells him, you know, roll you in Kenpo with his Asian, his Korean friend who was also a police officer. So they enroll the kid in Kenpo and young Jeff is learning Kenpo and he's really good. And then it flash forward a little bit and you see high school with older Jeff and his younger brother walking well then of course a football player starting some stuff and harassing them and eventually Jeff just turns around and beats the shit out of the football player with like three kicks and puts him in the hospital and so the dad is angry and banishes Jeff just said you know get out of here I want you in my house so now Jeff is coming back coming back to visit everyone well he's come back he comes back to visit his cop friend and he doesn't want to see his dad. There's like really bad blood. So he goes to visit his Korean cop friend and, you know, they, <laughs> how you doing? And, you know, yucking it up and whatnot. And while he goes there, you can see there's a mafia thing. They're trying to extort the old man. And of course, Jeff Speakman comes in, dishes out a couple of knuckle sandwiches, beats the crap out of them. They run off. Then, of course, well, shouldn't have done that because they're part of the mafia. And so now they're going to be coming back for trouble. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. And that's basically the movie. And then, of course, things escalate. 
the dude gets his mentor guy gets killed. Jeff Speakman decides to go look around and beat some people up to find out what happened to him. And there's your movie. It's your standard, typical 90s action movie, 80s action movie. It is exactly what you would expect whenever you pop this sucker in. Nothing more, nothing less. And if this is the type of movie you're looking for, you're going to freaking love it. It is so cool. The cover, what do, the cover for the film gives you a promise. It tells us something. When you watch this film, you're going to see this. Does, does this cover deliver what's in the film? Let's see. You've got Sub-Zero looking menacingly. Yes. Jeff Speakman with the whirly sticks. Yes. No knife, no equal. Yes. No gun, no knife, no equal. Yeah, exactly. Actually, even that little tagline is correct because Jeff Speakman doesn't do that. He just, his hands are his weapons, except for when he gets a pair of sticks because he is really deadly with those. He just goes around beating the crap out of people. It's an incredible film. You really ought to watch it. Like, I can't, I could ramble on and on about this, but seriously, this is the perfect weapon. It's a comfortable, wonderful hour and 23 minutes. It is a by the numbers, 90s beat em up action flick. You're going to, if this is your type of movie, you're going to love it. So, anyway, I'm Daniel, and this has been about the perfect weapon. Thank you very much, and I will holler at y'all later. <laughs> Astro Radio Z, and we love talking about movies with you. If you are looking for more episodes and want to become part of this show, go to patreon.com forward slash all the gimmicks and become a monthly subscriber. There, you'll have access to not only 100 plus bonus episodes of content, but a monthly bonus episode of Astro Radio Z Uncensored with Mark the Movie Man, where you, the listener, tell us what to cover on the show. Jump in, make Astro Radio Z yours, and become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com forward slash all the gimmicks. Nightbirds is for the turned on generation. The now movie of our time. Are you a queer? Of course not. Filmed in London's East End, Nightbirds is a chronicle of today's permissive youth. for young adults who don't mind having their faces slapped. On Sundays? <laughs> on Mondays? Oh, stop it, Mabel. You're giving me a hard on. Oh! oh! What a dirty mind you have. What's the address? It's 169 Commercial Street. That's a gay number. What do you mean? You can explain that one to him when you get home. I don't know what you mean. Don't you, love? Before I met you, all I'd ever do was, well, masturbate.
the self-destructive forces of the female come together in night birds. Nightbirds is a study of moral masturbation. Everyone's private demon come alive. It was my fault. I wouldn't take any bets on it. made in 1970 is a story about two people living in London's East End, a young man named Dink, who starts out the movie rather drunk, puking on the side of a street. And D, this beautiful skinny blonde that comes up to his aid and decides, hey, why don't you come with me? I see you're squatting here. You're, you're kind of homeless. Why don't you? I'll put you up for the night. And uh, let's get you off the streets. And they, after this point, strike up a relationship that in typical Milligan fashion, of course, doesn't end well. Nightbirds, compared to everything we've been talking about for a while here on Astro Radio Z, is so different. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a drama. It's people talking, relationships. 
Uh, it's again, we're back in black and white land with Andy Milligan. And uh, as it. we have stated before, such a better place to be when dealing with Andy Milligan. Vaughn, what is it about the black and white that just works for him? Well, because you can't really see what kind of color the garbage is. So <laughs> it really works well. Like he ha- he can have them in like fuchsias and dark art and bright oranges. And we wouldn't know because they're they're just kids in black and white slowly destroying each other. It's just it's beautiful. It's wonderful. <laughs> it, it, the, it, the movie has this really weird kind of sense of humor about it at times, mm-hmm. but it's just oppressively bleak in tone with what's going on with the people that are in it, Evan. Now, you had made a reference earlier in the opening monologue about this being a very depressing episode and a hard week for you (laughs) watching these films. What's your first impressions of Nightbirds? Well, I guess the movie, you know, it, it, it presents this guy, Dink, as basically a you know, a damaged person, somebody that is is looking for a mother figure or love, and you know, he's just a just a lonely guy that is is kind of walled up in in himself, and he finally finds somebody that is helping him break down those walls, and you know, or so you'd think, you'd think this is so. It's it's all. I will admit that he. he Milligan was good in not telescoping the end. I mean, I couldn't tell what her deal was. I mean, she definitely had D had some major issues throughout the film. She had some quirks, definitely, but I couldn't figure out what <laughs> what they were. You know, there, there's a um, you know, I think probably the central symbol of the movie when they after they meet each other and they go up to her dilapidated flat up at the uh, top floor of this building, they. Uh, they find a a bird that has like crashed through the window and broken mm-hmm. its leg, and and uh, Dink you know wants to care for it and and help it heal you know because that's what he needs, and uh, and she resists that she doesn't seem to have empathy for this bird she doesn't want to have a bird in in her house and everything and that little B plot you know just symbolizes um, the movie I mean. Basically, I, well, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it right now. But um, there's these hints where, yeah, you see through her uh, veneer that she's not very patient or loving, or that maybe she's not a good person. Not yeah. good. Not a good person. It's but hint, hint. Like most of Milligan's women, yeah, not exactly. good people. <laughs> um, and. Uh, you know, there's this there's this other scene where where Dink brings her to meet his uh, his sort of proxy mother figure, Mabel. Yeah. And that is a that is a weird scene. And I can't tell I can't tell what's if if what is weird or the weird parts are intentional or if it's just a byproduct of Milligan trying to force these little episodes of of emotion, but you know, his relationship with this old lady is kind of, is really weird. And I don't like his performance really. So that <laughs> adds to the weirdness of it. He's the, the, the guy that's playing Dink is uh, basically a couple of Quasimodo's from earlier movies. Like that's what yep. Yep, he's Berwick Kaler. Who's <laughs> as you had said, he's been Quasimodo in a number 
of other movies we've already talked about. And this is the first time where he gets to actually spread his wings and attempt to act. Yeah. And when I say attempt to act, I mean attempt to act. Mm -hmm. He's not a good actor. No, he isn't. Gets under my skin a little bit. But, (laughs) But while he's sort of, you know, playing grab ass with this old woman, um, the, his girlfriend is, looks so bored and, and like really, really wants to get out of there. And she, and she's like, you can tell it's, it's, it's visible on her face that she's like had enough of this. She doesn't want this, um, to be here anymore. And, and she, you know, she'll eventually ruin that relationship as well or attempt to. Well, she definitely wants dink all to herself there's there's a the theme of the movie definitely is about two damaged people that find each other one is open to love and the other has closed off love and just wants to use the other yeah and uh this mabel character you're speaking of which seems to be the only person that dink has in his life anymore because he was raised by this mother that he's obsessed with that kept him sheltered for many, many years, which, of course, as we have talked about before, is an ongoing thing with Milligan because of his own relationship with his mother. And I think Mabel is supposed to be kind of an amalgamation of both Milligan's own mother and maybe some repressed there's always got to be some incest angle going on in all of these movies. And it it does feel because the Mabel character openly admits about how much she wants to fuck him through that entire scene and every scene that she's in. Mm -hmm. Uh, So both of these movies tonight have this mother character. Yes. This movie has Mabel and Fleshpot has Candy played by uh, Neil Flanagan, not to not to jump forward. But both of these movies share a lot in common with each other oh i i just good that we're yeah which is which is good that we're talking about them together because structurally and thematically there's a lot being shared between the two of them but uh this mabel character and the idea of weird mothers that have relationships with men that may not be necessarily natural seems to be a very milligan thing (laughs) vaughn thoughts (laughs) thoughts <laughs> oh god uh <laughs> just let it all out there um i know like you guys have like an, uh, well at least um evan has an issue with berwick killer uh, i think he actually does a really good job as kind of a semi brain dead uh well brain damaged kind of like um naive character you know what i mean he doesn't mm-hmm. he doesn't notice that um and, I, and julie shaw who plays d you know, is the the powerhouse of the film. She's the one that you're just like, because she really just belts it for the, you know, she hits it out there <clears throat> with her performance. And she's strictly like, yeah, yeah. She's just keeping this man at ease and keeping him there with kind of just, you know, whatever she can, whatever her wilds are, and just playing around all over the place. You know what I mean? She's using her sexuality to, you know, get the place that she's renting for free with, even though it's shit. But she's she's using she's using what she has and she knows how to use it to get exactly what she wants and what she needs. Mm-hmm. And she's just keeping D, you know, she's keeping Dink around because he is just an easy mark. You know what I mean? Like just get rid of everything that's in his in his own world. And when he starts to fight back, she's just gonna go like a like a fucking hyena and just attack him. 
uh-huh. and put him back in in his place yeah, beat him down. and make sure that he stays there mm-hmm. by using sex as a weapon. Yep. Like, and the thing is, everybody else can you can throw out the window. It's it's Dink and D that are 90 percent of the film. Right. You know, you're, you're stuck with these two people either in this kind of sh- this shabby little like uh, apartment or on the streets of London. I think it's, it's it's fantastic. You know, I, I I'm a, I'm a big fan of films that have bummer endings. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And this film has a, a and it's just like you you see the films that he did around this time, like Bloodthirsty Butchers. Um, and I forget the other fucking movie. He did a couple movies in England and then came back to the States. And all of them are strictly like, you know, these kind of like I'm doing this for a pro- for somebody. And like, he, I don't know if he, you know, he just got they said, OK, we can give you one for yourself and go ahead and do this kind of melodrama. And it's just it's wonderful. You know what I mean? Yeah, I completely agree. This is definitely a movie uh, that can embrace being about people in relationships without the shackles of having to also be a monster or horror movie. Yeah. When I first saw this movie, when I I picked up, this was released through the BFI shock, right? Uh, (laughs) Which is the British Film Institute on Blu-ray. And I first watched this and I had already seen a bunch of his films. So I was kind of like, okay, let's see what this is. And this was considered long out of like long lost and then the right. BFI kind of made this available. You know, they, um, was it Nicholas Winden Refn acquired the prints from Andy War- Andy's biographer. And then they kind of found out he had them and they were, he was, they were, he was working on kind of remastering them. So he has them like as a digital copy. Um, and they said, Hey, you know, he kind of got in touch with the BFI and they said, yeah, because it was made here. Why don't we preserve it? And it, you know, it got out that way. And you expect with a film like this, that there's going to be like, really kind of something really out there like in the next film the ending is a huge like you know a belt to the face yeah <laughs> um but in this film it's it's gradual and it works like as this kind of little melodrama you know what i mean and, and i a, think it doesn't feel like the kind of weird twist that some other movies would use no you kind of just expect as it. a gotcha like a gotcha moment no, it, you expect it's definitely a film. theme through the entire movie for yeah, sure no, you would see that his it's his most fluid idea you know what I mean? Like it's it's crazy that he was making like just ramshackle shit, and he came out with this just like on the fly. You know what I mean? But here I like, have a question though. Like, so bizarre. do you guys do you do you guys think that D's character, yeah, um, like needed something from him? Like 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 she was dependent on him for some kind of um, uh, validation or anything? It it seemed to me that she was just a sadist. Right. Okay. Okay. Like a power struggle yeah, with, the whole time. Yeah, the only way we can really uh, like answer that question is to go through the ending. So, folks, if you haven't yeah. seen Nightbirds, and we all here, I'm guessing, I, I can't speak for you, Evan, but I know Vaughn and I will both say that you should go out and see this movie. This is one of Milligan's best movies. Stop the podcast right here. Go check it out. Come back and uh, you can listen to the rest of our conversation because we can't really get into it about Nightbirds without revealing the end twist that happens. So uh, cue boarding house music. This is a warning. Thank you. All right. So the end of this movie, um, after we've gone through many episodes of uh D and Dink having relationship bliss where they're really in love with each other and they they like being around each other. Mm-hmm. Then one of them ends up either seeing a member of the opposite sex or talking to a member of the opposite yeah. sex. Then they both get insanely jealous at each other and mm-hmm. fight and scream. And then eventually Dink apologizes and D uses her sexual uh, lures 
to bring him back under her wing. Right. This goes on throughout the whole movie until the very end where uh, both D and Dink are basically forced to try and because winter's coming to steal and uh, shoplift a coat to get by and uh, get some money. They're out of money. D ends up going and making a phone call to her mother Mm -hmm. who she hasn't talked to in a long time. And you come to find out that actually her family's very well off and that D has a child from another man that gave her syphilis. (laughs) And the child has some health issues. And D, because of the childbirth and the syphilis that ran rampant, no longer can have children and the father is not in the picture whatsoever anymore. And uh, her mom wants her to come back is, you know, crying and pleading with her. And D is so far gone. Just like, Nope. Thank you. Just leave some money for me. I'll come pick it up. Right. It's very, we find out that she is cold and that revenge is the only thing that fuels her And because she can't get revenge on the man that did this to her, she's going to do this to all men that she possibly can. Cue pie Borgen. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So so that's that's the basic overall thrust of her character. That sounds goofy coming just from just reading it. But when you watch it, it's just like a when you watch the whole film, it's a really... It's not out there. It's like holy shit, and then you understand like her whole kind of her whole surrounding, mm-hmm. like her her whole work, her whole work inside of that brain of hers, and like why she's so vindictive and such a like this angry, bitter fucking woman. Um, and it's like wow, you know, and you can you totally sympathize with her. I mean, you still feel bad for for Dink because he's just. Uh, well, because she dumps him yeah. and he's totally in love with her. Right. And she just is like, get the fuck out of here. Yep. I don't want to see you. If you come back up here, the police will be here. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, OK. And, and the last calls him a queer. You know, scene of the movie is she finds another hapless boy yeah. on the side of the road. And she's going to do this all over again. Mm-hmm. And she kills the bird. Yes. Well, yeah, she kills this bird, which is the symbol of the fact that, you know, Dink is actually at his core a very caring and loving injured boy yeah like his whole thing is that when he he grew up a sheltered and damaged person Mm -hmm. and hasn't had the opportunity to really grow up the pigeon when he finds the pigeon that gets from what i've heard it was milligan throwing this pigeon through a glass window and literally breaking its leg Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I've heard. I don't know if it's necessarily true. But anyways, uh, at the beginning of the movie, this pigeon comes crashing into the flat and he, you know, puts it in a cage and wants to nurse it back to health. D, once she gets to this point where she's like, "Okay, I've had enough of fucking dink. He's out of here. She goes and wrings its fucking neck. Yep. And I don't know if that was a dummy or if she literally killed this bird. What are your do you guys think that this was like another cannibal Holocaust situation or or like the mice that are constantly in Milligan's movies that he decides to decapitate all the time? <laughs> well, there wasn't really any like, you know, PETA or any of that bullshit. And plus, this guy was making the films for about, I don't know, 
two lunches nowadays. Um, so, well, especially this movie, there's nothing to this movie. Yeah, that's at a great, all. I think that's a great thing about it. I think it fe- it feels even more gorilla than his films did before. It feels like he found the flat. Maybe he was even living in the flat, and just was like, "Oh, this is a perfect place." And he just shot everything on the street. You know, every piece of the every piece that was on the street, and he shot. And maybe he knew somebody who had a, ca- a cottage home that he can use. Um, you know, like he just it's it's hardcore gorilla, and it's just it's wonderful for that. I mean, that's the one thing I really love about his work is that, you know, everybody kind of like really goes about uh, Larry Cohen and how gorilla he was. This guy did mm-hmm. everything completely under the boards. No one, you know, no one was paying attention to him. No, not at all. You know, and his and he made these wonderfully wacky and outlandish films that are just, you know, it's amazing that more and more, and more people haven't you know, seen these movies. Well, they've been lost. I mean, to be honest, yeah, especially this point. one it, of all the movies that I think uh, cinemaphiles would dig into. This is the one and it's been lost up until what? The last couple of years. Uh-huh. Yep. So um, back we are to handheld Andy yeah. Milligan mm-hmm. again, which what a difference. What a, he's he gets in there. There's interesting camera angles. We have overheads. We have moves with the camera where we're canting the camera. We're getting yep. right in the mix. No longer are we just setting up a fucking tripod and letting people walk into frame. Yeah, it feels it feels like he had more time with this film. And we'll talk about in the next film. There are scenes on the street where it feels like he is running within the crowd. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And this because it seems like there's nobody in this town. You know what I mean? Everywhere he go, anywhere, anywhere they shoot on the street, it feels like nobody's there. Which I'm, it's a desolate uh, place. Yeah, I'm amazed by. I, I love that. I love that whole kind of that whole ang- angle on the film too. That's just these two people, and they kind of occasionally interact with uh, with small people. But it's just these two people locked in this this little flat, um, kind of arguing and kind of getting back to each other and kind of you know bickering and just like this this weird kind of like evolution of a of a relationship and how kind of it ebbs and flows. And then at the end of it, and at the end of it, it's just a pure like friggin', you know, roller coaster ride down, and it's just, uh, it just it goes down very quickly. Yeah. Now for all the gorilla uh, impulses and uh, techniques that are used in this movie, this is an insanely scripted movie. Yep. Like there's a lot of dialogue. It's definitely not all um, improvised. Some of it I'm sure is, but for the most part, this has all of the trademark. Andy Milligan talky dialogue throughout the whole thing. Evan, did you get into any of the dialogue, like the way people acted towards each other compared to maybe some of the other shit we had watched before? Oh yeah, definitely. Like the, when they're sort of still falling in love, you know, towards maybe in the first half, they go up on the, on the roof and they do this weird little, I'm going to worship you. Monta, you know, <laughs> yeah. this thing where she, he sort of like poses like Jesus and then she kind of does some weird. I mean, that, that that's some really she, genu- she genuflex in front of him. Yeah, I believe. yeah, it's really weird. Um, But but that was, uh, you know, that was definitely a deliberate, you know, uh, artistic writing. Um, And yeah, I agree. Like this did remind me of Vapors. Uh, yeah, quite a bit. Um, you know, there's just not, like you said, it's, it's real. We're just spending time with them talking. There's not a whole lot of change ups to, to discuss really. Right. A few locations. 
And the amazing part that I always find with the the actress, uh, what's her name? I can't think of it right now. My head just completely went blank. Julie, Julie Shaw. Shaw. She, this is her last piece. Like she she didn't do much. She only did like she only did she did one other film called uh, The Big Switch, which is a Pete Walker film. And then everything else besides this, that she actually has a, her name in the title. Everything else is uncredited. Like she's either a walk on piece or she's just like a person in the background. And I'm like, it, it amazes it amazes me that she never did anything after this. Maybe yeah, it's really too bad because she's pretty good in this. Yeah, movie. She, she's, she's fine. The, yeah, she's awesome in this film. I'm just like, I, 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 it boggles my mind when you see that. It's like, what the fuck? Did like Milligan really put her through that much shit? Like, who knows? You know, or just you realize like that she's just not making it as an actress and she just kind of quit. Or maybe she just didn't want to. Maybe this was her, you know, she was in a couple things and then yeah. she decided to move on. She thought That's she'd okay. have to kill a bird in every movie. <laughs> well, I know I did read that uh, the bird did squick her out like that whole thing didn't go well for her. Right. And she uh, she does not look back fondly on that scene yeah. at all. OK, there are things in both of these movies tonight that indicate somebody making fringe cinema. This movie of any movie that I've seen in 1970 or before is one of the first instances where I've ever seen or heard somebody say cocksucker. <laughs> yeah. My, my, my hair stands on my, on end of my arm when I was like, Ooh, that's great. <laughs> this is, this is some real fucking shit here. And what we're talking about, there's a scene where I, that I had talked about before where they go to shoplift a coat and they get caught by this shopkeeper and the, the shopkeeper yells at him, calling him a cocksucking son of a bitch. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> He's running out. <laughs> Which led me to believe that felt like a very real <laughs> sequence. Like, oh, did they set this dude up? Is it? Because <laughs> you don't hear people in the 70s in movies say cocksucker very no. much. <laughs> Even though in both of these movies tonight there's somebody says cocksucker um so other than this obviously being a, a kind of a throwback to to vapors and more of the the personal uh drama piece milligan was there anything about this that didn't work for you guys at all i um think that i think for the most part he he got what he what he wanted but there's a couple scenes I think that seem forced because he needed to show that ebb and flow in the relationship. So, you know, like the, the, the abrupt uh, changes when, when he becomes, when Dink becomes jealous that she's talking to the landlord and it's just zero to 60. And then as, as quick back down. And I feel like, I feel like, when I was watching it, it, it seemed like he was kind of like, like this guy's like, you know, mentally challenged or something, but I don't, right. I don't think that that was the intent. I think he would just wanted to get in that this relationship was bumpy, but, mm-hmm. but it's just not done with a, with a deft hand, you know? So I, I a felt ball that, peen hammer. Yeah. Like everything yeah. the man makes, he hit it with a ball peen hammer. The man yeah. was not freaking. the man was not, was not secure. Was not a, was not, pretty about everything yeah well it, it, when speaking about that uh, like a scene like that with this landlord i was under the impression he was also one of these experiments 
are these men, like every single man in Dee's life that she used in order to get what oh, yeah. she wanted. Definitely. Definitely. She she definitely holds a lot of people at bay with her own sexuality. And she does that. And she probably was doing that with the landlord um, before that. And that's why she never pays for rent in that shitty apartment. Um. Which, if I mean, you can call it an apartment. Yeah, it's a hole. There's like a big hole in the roof. Like, what the fuck? I don't think they had any plumbing. No. Yeah, where did the hell, where the hell did they piss or shit? Well, it's probably one of those. You ever you, like a halfway house? Not a halfway house, but like a, when you rent a room for a, in a building, and there's a there's a toilet at the end of the uh, at the end of the hall. I, I think it's just like maybe it's just because I saw this last night. It's like uh, the fucking lighthouse where there's just buckets. They just piss and shit in buckets and then throw them off the fucking roof. No wonder the birds are flying in there all the time. <laughs> Don't spoil so, it. So Don't it, spoil it. <laughs> oh, Christ. We already spoiled this thing. So at the end of the movie. No, no I meant the lighthouse. <laughs> oh, I'm not spoiling. Oh, what? what? If, if them pissing and shitting in pots is a spoiler to you. Who knows? <laughs> it's, it's an art movie. <laughs> So, you know, Evan Evan talks about how, like, at least the two of you guys talk about how, like, Burwa Killer is kind of an eh actor. He's he's continued to work up until 2013. Like, really? In many wow. stuff. Like, he was he was in the first Red Riding Hood film, uh, Red Riding Hood in 1974. He was in a bunch of, like, a whole shitload of TV. Like, a lot more TV than anything else. But he pops up in films every once in a while. Um, yeah, but Night's Tale, I yeah. see here. Um, yeah. Is there anything else I actually know? Yeah, well, yeah. Like I don't. This is a lot of British TV, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at him like, wow. Like he's a he's a big television actor, which you know, and it all started with from Bloodthirsty Butchers. Look at that. The man. The man made it. Uh, yep. He was Spool in The Body Beneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tobias in Bloodthirsty Bu- Bloodthirsty Butchers. He was Malcolm in The Rats Are Coming. Yep. He's in the the man with two heads. Man, he was in a, all of this stuff around this time. Yeah. Is that- he was in a lot of great stuff, and look, he yeah, continues but- to be in a great stuff. And that's the main. And, that, and look, and you guys are like, eh, he's a shit actor. Well, I guess somebody thought he was good enough. Where was like, oh, we'll keep him. He's got a face, even though he's got a face like a bull weevil. It's like I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know what's more of an insult, us saying that his acting was shit, or he's got a face like a bull weevil. I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, I well, I think you know, in general. Milligan doesn't really great get great performances out of his actors. No. Because there's really no room for subtlety in any of the um movies or the plots or the the dialogue or the characters. Yeah. In any of this stuff. Even even when they get, you know, this movie more than most, they kind of sit and talk about some pretty existential things and philosophical things pertaining to sexuality and and what they want out of life and right. stuff like that. Even then, they it gets juxtaposed, as you boys had said before, by immediate left turns into screaming. Right. <laughs> that there's there's no real room for subtlety or building of, of character or emotion. There's just 90 degree turns. <laughs> so I think that some of it is just the scripting of of what these characters are are kind of told to do. There are some genuine nice moments in this movie. Um for me overall while this is one of my favorite ones, there are sections of this that are rinse and repeat. Mm. I think this if this was cut down by another 15 minutes, this probably be a much better film. 
because there are it, it, we just kind of go through a good section of the middle of this film where um we we go through series or periods of tranquility to periods of screaming mm-hmm. back to sex to periods of tra- it just rinse and repeats through yeah, the vast majority of the movie very much like real life and i i kind of i kind of like that you know what I mean? I mean, if I, yes, it, I do feel that it could probably be like do it like maybe 10, five, 10 minutes cut out of it. Um, but I feel that because it's such a, it's such a kind of a, a blunt melodrama um, that I think it works. I think it works well for that. You know what I mean? So where would you put this in my, for, for Milligan movies? This isn't the top 10. This is when I first saw this, I was like, Oh shit. Um, but like maybe like top five really like mm-hmm. because it's 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 so remarkable it's like if you give somebody this film and like like the bfi disc and the blu-ray that came out i think it has the body beneath as a as like a special feature on it like a 2k scan of that and it's like watch this and watch that film like it's a double feature and you can tell automatically the whole oeuvre of this guy's work within those two films yeah it's true because you know he he made a handful of films that like that are kind of interesting little dramas and then he had made a shit ton of terrible fucking low and low budget no budget monster movies and the body Meath is one of those it's, you know but it's it's actually a good one out of all those british films he made you mm-hmm. know so evan your your kind of parting thoughts on this thing how did you come out on nightbirds and was there anything you wanted to talk about we hadn't covered on this movie Oh, Astro Radio Z, folks. That's Astro Radio Z in a nutshell, folks. (laughs) I think that it was probably... I think it's one of his better films, um, but that doesn't make me really prefer this one. Um, I just feel like it was... I didn't see... I think what I saw most prominent in it was his was Milligan's like misanthropy. Okay. And I, I, I don't know that he was saying, I don't feel like he was speaking much to the audience, to their experience, but he was just expressing his own just hatred. <laughs> Frustration and hatred. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of, a, a lot of anger towards women in this movie yeah so prominent so so not a fan not a fan of this one what the oh fuck? man i did not expect this <laughs> i did not expect this even so okay oh. <laughs> whoa tells me tell motherfucker tells me derek is this really that bad a movie rats are coming the werewolves are here this really that bad a movie then comes on Nightbirds. Ah, fuck this shit. <laughs> <laughs> fuck this shit. This movie where he's actually trying. Fuck this shit. Give me the 10 cent fucking werewolves again. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. They're funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're getting a heel turn tonight on the on the show. Thanks, folks. 
Oh <laughs> Evan's going full bore. <laughs> Fuck this shit. I think, you know, what I think's happening here, Evan, is that you finally hit the the depths of despair with Milligan. You finally got to the point where you're like, you know what? I don't want to fucking do this anymore. I don't want to watch this shit anymore. Maybe. I mean, just think of what would Milligan have thought if he, you know, if he envisioned people watching his whole filmography in a row, you know, like what would Milligan have thought if he had to actually sit and watch all of his movies? Really? What would- yeah. <laughs> he probably knew this is not to be done. This is not anything that's going to have value, you know, but we're studying him. You know, we're not just watching one of his movies with popcorn. We're like figuring him out. And uh, yeah, it's coming clear that this guy had some real deep seated issues. Mo- he did not like ladies too much. Yeah. So uh, Nightbirds, two thumbs up, one thumb down in in a quite a heel turn that I was not expecting <laughs> on the show tonight. So uh, let's take a break, folks. And when we come back, we're going to talk about our second movie of the night, which is Flesh Pot on 42nd Street, made in 1973. We're going back to Colorland and the Grindhouse. So stick around.
alone by Edgar Allan Poe. From childhood's hour, I've not been as others were. I've not seen as others saw. I could not bring my passions from a common spring. From the same source, I've not taken my sorrow. I could not awaken my heart to joy at the same tone. And all I loved, I loved alone. Then, in my childhood, in the dawn of a most stormy life, was drawn from every depth of good and ill, the mystery which binds me still, from the torrent or the fountain, from the red cliff of the mountain, from the sun that round me rolled in its autumn tint of gold, from the lightning in the sky as it passed me flying by, from the thunder and the storm and the cloud that took the form when the rest of heaven was blue, of a demon in my view. For more audiobooks, go to patreon.com forward slash all the gimmicks. Transmission is in your space. You are not safe now or ever. Gods help me, gods help me, gods help me, Rennick thought. Desperation had caught hold in the root of him. He was sweating underneath his heavy oil rain cloak, and the rain had collected in his boots. He walked briskly, twisting and turning down wet back alleys, occasionally clamoring over mounds of refuse that blocked some of the rarely used alleys. The rain was maddening. It kept him from being able to see clearly, and the deep hood of his rain cloak obscured his vision further. He was constantly looking behind him, and lifting his hood slightly to peer left and right into the shadows of the alleys. He knew it was still behind him. The Dagger Man. They were not men. Rennick had seen the Dagger Man about Hill House, never coming in or out of the gates. They seemed to enter an exit from somewhere within the house itself. They rarely spoke just smiled and grinned with their mouths over full of teeth. They were not men, no. And one of those smiling bastards was behind Rennick now. It had been behind him since he departed from Hell House, just after three at o'clock. He could feel it back there, grinning in the dark, slinking through the rain, slowly getting closer to him. Rennick stepped out of the alley and onto the main thoroughfare. He paused to orient himself for a moment. He had taken so many random turns that he had lost his sense of direction. He looked quickly to the left and right, and he saw that he was on the street of the Silver Cat. He had ended up on the west side of the hill somehow. Damn you, he cursed himself. Someone laughed behind him from the darkness of the alleyway. Rennick spun around and the laughter stopped. He peered into the darkness of the mouth of the alley, but he could not see anyone there. I saw nothing. I am a loyal man. I will never speak a word, I swear. Rennick pleaded to the darkness. A shape stepped out of the blackness of the alley. In the dark, 
Renna could see teeth gleaming in the dim moonlight. Too many teeth. The shape laughed, low and guttural, inhuman. Rennick turned and ran. He ran back east up the street of the Silver Cat, which skirted the south end of the hill as it led all the way to the river. Rennick's hood flew back as he barreled through the night. His hair was soaked almost instantly by the rain, and the water began running down his neck and back, chilling him. He reached the first cross street. He looked left or right for any sign of the watch. At nearly four o'clock, he did not expect to see an iron south of the hill, but maybe the closer he got to the river, to the docks and taverns. He chanced a quick look behind him and did not see anyone following him. He topped the crest of the street of the Silver Cat and began to descend the low hill which rolled out east to the river. He could see the lights of Riverside ahead of him, with its taverns and brothels and inns that stayed lit all night. As far as he could see down, no one was walking on this gloomy, wet night, save for him. The river was a gleaming black snake in the distance. He kept running toward the river, but could not decide where to go exactly. His home was only a short run south, but he was not sure he would be safe there. He might find a watchman if he kept heading east, toward the river, but he was not sure that he'd be safe, even with a watchman. The dagger man was not human. Rennick's breath began to burn in his chest like fire, heaving in and out of him involuntarily. His feet were wet bricks. His arms hung limp at his sides. He stopped to catch his breath. Just after he stopped, the rain began to pour harder. He stood for a moment, completely soaked inside his cloak now, until he caught his breath. He glanced all about him while he stood there, checking the mouth of every alley for the shape of a man. Still, he saw no one out on the dark street. He began to run again, still toward the river when he saw someone coming up the street toward him. A dark figure, head down, walking quickly through the pouring rain. This figure was about a hundred paces from Rennick, and Rennick could not make out the easily spotted dull shine of a watchman's iron cap. Rennick stopped running, not wanting to frighten the person, and began walking. He threw up his hood again. As he got closer to the figure, only a dozen or so paces away now, he noticed that it was a man stoutly built, with his hands behind his back. As the man drew near, he looked up, and he smiled at Rennick with far too many teeth. Rennick screamed and twisted away from the man, falling down and splashing into a puddle on the cold cobblestones. The dagger man was on him instantly, plunging his ice-cold dagger into Rennick's belly. With the first few stabs, Rennick screamed and moaned, retching and lurching with each penetration of the blade, begging for the dagger man to stop but he soon lost his breath. When the blade plunged into him, he could only heave and cough. He gripped the dagger man's wrist, trying to stop the stabbing, but the dagger man was as strong as an axe. The dagger pierced him again, and this time the dagger man left the dagger there, in Rennick's belly. The dagger man laughed in Rennick's face, and grinned strangely as he began to back away slowly toward an alleyway. The dagger man's teeth were spattered in Rennick's blood, and as the dagger man slowly backed into the blackness of the alley, still grinning and chuckling, he began to lick the blood from his teeth with a diseased, misshapen tongue. Grinning and licking, the dagger man disappeared into the dark. Rennick hauled himself to his feet and began to run again. He made it thirty paces before he fell down. The hazy, rain-filled sky spun above him. He could not remember which way he'd been running. He reached down and pulled the dagger from his belly screaming as the icy pain sliced him from the inside. The dagger clanked to the wet street. 
I got a dark blood part from the wound. Renick gasped wetly and clawed at the wound. Guards, help me. Guards, help me. Guards, help me. He whimpered into the rain. He was back on his feet. He was pounding weakly on someone's door, but there was no answer from within the house. He stumbled backward away from the door, leaving bloody smears all over it. He fell onto his back in the middle of the street. The rain fell into his eyes and nose and mouth. He looked toward the river and saw no one. He looked back toward the hill and saw a shape on the street. At first he thought it was a dog, but then he realized it was the dagger man, on all fours like a beast, coming down a street toward him. Rennick screamed and launched himself up onto his feet. He could not stay upright though, and as he careened into the alleyway, he fell forward, smashing his face on the side of someone's house before he fell down again. Lying on his side, he spat out a wad of blood and a broken tooth and began to crawl deeper into the alley. He reached out and clawed his way along through the mud and the grime, leaving a ghastly trail of blood behind him. He crawled into a refuse pile to hide and turned to see down the alley he had just crawled into. The dagger man was there, at the mouth of the alley, on all fours. The dagger man was naked, and his misshapen member was stiff and pointed at Rennick's hiding place. He crouched low and began to lick and suck at the blood trail that Rennick had left in the alley. He sucked up just as much mud and grime as he did Rennick's blood, but he devoured it all greedily and without complaint as he crept up the alley toward where Rennick was hiding. Gods help me. Gods help me. Gods help me. Rennick began to repeat as he pissed his pants. The dagger man laughed through dirty lips, low and guttural and crept closer and closer. When I was five, I was an evil child. When I was six, I made the preacher sick. When I was seven, I stole my soul from heaven. When I was eight, I stood in my backyard. A man approached me from behind the barn. In his hands, he had a bag of bones. His teeth were black and his eyes were gold. He told me, son, I seem to have lost my way. I need to find the road to Calvary. If you help me walk this wicked path, I promise you and me will party with death Cause I was born into the arms of the devil And the devil took care of me Jesus never wanted to hang with us So we nailed his ass to a tree I was born into the arms of the devil And the devil took care of me Jesus never wanted to hang with us So we nailed his ass to a tree I slipped my parents' throats and ran away from home I took the hand of the beast and started heading east We set some churches ablaze and desecrated graves 
which I identify with quite strongly. Dreadlords is about one of the finest goddamn bands in this current era of absolute fucking dog shit where everything everybody does sucks ball scum. Fuck the bullshit. Dreadlords is where it's at. Hey, y'all filthy motherfuckers know me. It's your main man, Riggy Goddamn Mortis. And I got many more deliciously devilish tracks headed your way in just a second. Holla at ya, boy! Hello, ladies. Horace Keeley from Deep Sunshine Brands here to talk to you about Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags. Got a dirty little secret? A forbidden fruit that does not need to fully ripen under the sun. Try Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags. Weighted with lead and constructed of high-grade fiber coated in polypropylene, these bags are tough enough to handle the job and hefty enough to sink out of sight. Twice the trouble? A double order, you say? Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags are made roomy enough for two. A troublesome household pet? Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags can accommodate most good-sized companions in need of relocation. Ladies, don't worry about the mess. Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags are 100% watertight, able to contain the sloppiest of disposals without spilling a single drop on your well-maintained floors. Oh, but maybe you have a bigger John, I mean job to handle. Husband always making a mess of things. 
Maybe he needs to be tidy. Try our extra large sized Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags. Just make sure you've got a strong back when dealing with this one, or maybe a friend to help. And speaking of friends, ladies, if you have a partner in crime, say, friend who has a similar mess to clean up, Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags are now on sale, two for one, at a Woolworth's or Macy's near you. Throw your troubles away with friends, out with the old and... You are listening to Astro Radio Z. Hey, Mac, bring some drinks. Well, what'll it be, Billy? Beer. Beer for Billy, and what do you want, Dusty? Usual for Dusty, and the same for me. So, Billy, how you been? How's your mother? Still bitching. Maybe if you got a job, she wouldn't bitch so much. Look who's talking. What do you mean? I work. My office stretches from Upper Broadway to the end of Christopher Street. A good woman like me, you can't keep cooped up. She's got to roam. Which version of this uh, did you see this? Because there is a copy of this film on archive.org that's like 110 minutes. I watched the yeah, uh, Vinegar Syndrome one. Is that how long is that? Is that the hardcore version? Yeah, is the hardcore in there? Oh, it's got, yeah, it's got penetration. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Okay, you watched that one. I watched the R-rated cut, which yeah, is Girls on 42nd Street. Yeah, that's the one I saw, too. Was this on one, the back of this says it's 87 minutes. Okay, that's the that's the extended director's cut. That's the hardcore so version. That's 16 minutes longer than the one I saw. Jeez, mm-hmm. it wasn't 16 minutes of penetration, I'll tell you that. Well, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's very well known that there's two cuts of this movie. Um, Vinegar Syndrome, I I think this is one of the first instances where this movie has finally gotten its full uncut release since maybe it played the grindhouses. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's on Amazon, uh, and that's where I saw it, Mm. and uh, that's the R-rated cut. Yeah, like and I, it looks great. I mean, vinegar, vinegar syndrome must have put because obviously they can't put hardcore up on Amazon. No. So they did a cut down and it's the, the R rated cut that's up there. So between uh, not, I mean, we'll get around to talking about uh, the plot and everything yeah. with this movie. But uh, seems how Vaughn and I didn't see the hardcore cut of Flesh Pot on 42nd Street. Right. Yeah. Uh what I mean, is there an all if we were going to talk about it being a stroke flick, is there a lot of sex in the movie beyond what you would term like kind of an R rated sexy movie? I mean, so there's like there's three or four sex scenes and the first two. So you get one one with the um, the roommate. Um, John or whatever his name is in the beginning. Yeah. You get one with the with the. um the pawn shop deal. Uh, yeah, I, I, the copy I but, saw, it's, it's, you can see that it, it's about to start and all of a sudden it cuts to like them laying in yeah. bed. And like after yeah, those like, oh, two okay. scenes don't, there's nothing hardcore in there. I mean, you see Bush, but there's no, yeah, well, there's that's, no, that's hardcore. The only, there's no dick. Um, I don't think Harry Reams in there. You might see a little, you know, a little hanging, but well, I was wondering, I was curious because the first scene is, uh, the actor is the guy that's the plays the dad from last house yep. on the left. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. There's two actors in this movie from last house on the left. Um, 
Fred Lincoln, mm-hmm. who was, you know, he renowned porno actor, actor yep. along with Harry Reams, who's also in this movie. He played one of uh, the guys from Krug's crew in mm-hmm. Last House on the Left. And then the dad, who is that roommate you spoke of yep. in the beginning. Okay. Of this I didn't recognize. So him. I was curious if that was a hardcore scene or not. It is. No, it isn't. I mean, it's basically just tummy rubbing, you know, and you see his <clears throat> hairy ass. Um, oh, you gotta cut man, that out. I missed out. You missed out on, on some, <laughs> you know. So the two old guys in this movie don't hang dong. No, not that I remember. Yeah. I Okay, no. good, good, the, good. It's good. the it's the it's the love scene. It's the when they when she falls in love. Then you get to see. Oh <laughs> yeah, to Harry Reams. Oh yeah. Of course it's Harry Reams. So <laughs> folks, before we get too deep into this, uh Fleshpot on 42nd Street, Andy Milligan comes back after making a number of shitty period piece talkie monster movies um, to making a drama again, almost it's not exactly the same plot as Nightbirds, but it's pretty similar in a lot of ways. Uh, The movie centers around Dusty, played by Laura Cannon, who is a prostitute that is just hustling to get by, uses men and uses anybody she can to either get a place to stay or to just live her life for the day and then moves on. And she does this. It's at the beginning of the movie. We get a few different scenarios where we get to see her manipulate men into getting what she needs to get by until she meets Cherry played by Neil Flanagan, who is a drag queen prostitute. Mm-hmm. And she shacks up with him and they start hustling together until one day she meets Harry Reams at their local pub. And he, of course, in typical fashion of any prostitute movie, you have to have some knight and, you know, white knight come in, come in in shining armor to try and take her away from the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But. Do you really think that Milligan's going to allow that to happen? <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> and we're going to spoil this right off the bat, folks. Because I mean, whatever. You don't want to hear us say what happens at the very end of this. Next 10 seconds. Uh, spoil- uh, cue Burning House spoiler music. This is a warning. Thank you. Out of nowhere, on their way out to go get a, a nice meal or something, Harry Reams gets hit by a fucking car and dies. And then we get. And this. she says she never met yep. him. Yep. And then she's just like, oh, I don't know who this fucking jabroni is. And then goes back on the street and hustles. Yeah. What a bullshit. So the heartwarming tale yeah, but the, of people being used <laughs> and abused <laughs> by women. <laughs> but the thing, is, the thing is, compared to the last film, though, I feel that she's much more of a sympathetic character. Than yes. D was in Nightbirds, yeah. because she's she's hustling because this is her life because she's kind of yep. fallen into this life of prostitution and um and kind of she's by the time we meet her she's not a naive girl anymore she's kind of she's probably had some bad times and she's probably figured out how to work the way and work her magic you know work her sexual wiles to get the yep. guys to do what she needs so she can survive another day. And this is kind of the world she lives in too. Every last person that she surrounds herself mm-hmm. also are using and hustling every last and they, person. And they, that and they use them. each other too. That's the thing with um, what's her name? Cherry. Cherry's Cherry seems to be broke all the goddamn time, and our and Dusty always seems to be able to kind of help her out, like you know, give her money and stuff like that because she probably makes more money than 
Cherry does because Cherry's a you know a dude. Uh, you know, which is um, a, a one thing that has that I'm, I'm very happy that's kind of gone to the wayside. Um, there's another film around this time. It's called uh, Scream in the Streets. You ever see that movie? Mm. No. Where there's a the killer of the film is a guy who dresses in drag and kills women. Um, it's bad. It's a bad like it's a bad film. But it's a it's a fun film, but it's bad. Um, but I like the fact that this whole kind of thing of guys dressing in drag, um, kind of as a as a kind of a uh, kind of push the squares out of the out of the theater. Um, type of thing um, is kind of left the wayside. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, do you really feel that that's, that's the gimmick here though? Do you really think that's the angle that Milligan was going for? Well, then he was, then you just get your best actor and you drag, you dress him in drag and try to scare this, this, the, the straight people out of the, of the audience. Do um, you feel that? I think it's definitely kind of, it's definitely put out there as a, as a shock value. Cause I mean, I, I see, I don't feel that at all, but I mean, I'm interested to hear where the, you're coming from. The characters on the characters, honest as shit, which I love. I love the fact that it's a very honest character. It's a gay person, you know, it's a gay person out there living, it's living, living their life. I mean, yes, they are dressed in, in women's clothing the whole damn time, but for 73, that's really, you know, you know, heads, head, you know, it's, it's over the, over the moon of how kind of pushing the, uh, the standard is. Um, but I think the fact that it's, I don't know. I, like anytime when I see films in the seventies, when they have a woman, a guy dressed in a, as a woman, kind of trying to masquerade as a woman, I always mm-hmm. just feel it's just it's just that kind of it's like the Christian, you know, the people who went to church on every day on Sunday. If they saw something like this, they would freak out and run out of the room. It's shock value. Yeah, it's truly shock value. You know what I mean? Because they could he could he could have he could have had a, a older woman be that character. You know what I mean? He didn't have to. He didn't have to have it. He could have had he could have had it as an older woman being that character. But this but is Milligan he, we're talking I, about. I and if we we think about his filmography and what's come before, right. uh, Vapors mm-hmm. definitely has, yeah, you no, know, another positive, another given us knowledge that he this is his life. This is where yeah. he comes from. This is right. where he lived, and he doesn't see this as deviant. He doesn't see this as anything other than what it is. No, if he, if it's he a person wanted, living their life the way that they choose to live their life. If he wanted to be safe, which he's not. Which, Milligan is never a safe guy when it comes to making the film. If you watch this film, you can see it that there are plenty of shots where he is in a crowd with the camera on his shoulder, watching his care, watching his actors as people just blatantly walk in the frame and walk out of frame because he's walking within a big crowd of people. Um, and there's just bad shots of him. It looks like he's laying on the floor as she's walking past him. Uh, <laughs> just bizarre shit. Um, but if he was doing it, he was if he was any other kind of kind of director of this time period, he would have made it an old woman. Mo, you know, Milligan, he's kind of like, screw it. I'm, I'm going to make it a drag queen, you know, and I uh, have her have him as one of the prostitutes that we're going to deal with within this film. You know what I mean? And she becomes kind of like a protector, I guess you can say to Dusty. Like she becomes mm-hmm. her friend and kind of like, uh, she, you know, like I said, she feel he feels like she's, he kind of is using her, but it feels like they're kind of, were and then kind of he's oh, what the fuck yeah, this, thing I'm thinking this is a point that i i think that i like this movie a lot better uh than Night Holy Birds. Shit. and um one of the reasons is it's i think it still has mean spiritedness <laughs> built into it but well oh, it's definitely. it's less i i think it's uh, it's sort of less volatile than Nightbirds. and i think the mean spiritedness in this movie is that dusty you know it looked like Dusty and Cherry really had a good friendship. Yep. You know, and that was supportive and they and they had a fun time together and they had a little cadre of uh hookers that were like, you know, old friends yeah. or whatever. They had a community. A community. There was a, a 
a sense of they had a comfortable, well, not comfortable in the the sense of, you know, financial security or anything like that, but they had a community that they could feel safe in and that they could live their life doing what they needed to do. Yep. Right. To fall back on. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, even though we end up finding out that they're all hustling each other and they'll cut each other's throats at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Yeah. But the great thing is, like I said, like Dusty is a character you can really get behind. And she isn't, even though she is, like I said, she's a hustler and she's she's doing all this stuff to make money and kind of live her life. You feel her ups and downs and you kind of go along with it. You know what I mean? When she gets with Bob um, and you see like the kind of like how her how her life changes and how she tries to change her life, but she ultimately can't. She kind of drags herself back into the, the world of, of prostitution um, and kind of goes back to him because she just can't get past. She can't get past that. She That's not her... Her being her living as a straight woman in a straight in the straight world is not something that she's used to anymore. But she also has a lot of trouble with it as well. There's multiple instances where when things start to get intimate yeah. and she starts to let her guard down, she has ticks of somebody who's obviously gone through trauma right. in the past. And she has a very tough time letting herself feel comfortable because she always has to keep her guard up. Yeah, definitely. It, you know, the, the thing is, it's, it's, yeah, she's definitely guarded. And when she has that chance to kind of stretch out, she definitely, you know, her own fuck ups, fuck it up. Um, I will say like, though I, that when, so before she meets Bob, she sets up this like, you know, gang bang basically um, yeah. that, you know, and schedules it. And after she meets Bob and falls in love, like she doesn't go through with that. She goes there, but she just gets the money and runs basically. Yeah. Well, that's because the the main dude starts beating her up again and she feels, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. This isn't worth right. it. Right. And now I she mean, has a different view of that. Like now she can't yeah, she can't do that again. You know, it's too it's too contrary to this new feeling. But but ultimately, like she can't get out of that life because like what happens at the end of the film. She well, just Milligan's he, not gonna let her yeah, get out. But that's just yeah. Milligan. He, she's she's <laughs> She's tortured. She's doomed to sit, to live in this fate for the rest of her existence, which would be another five minutes because, well, not even because the the end credits are like, uh, you know, two words, the end or Finn. I don't know. <laughs> That's the one thing I, I really wish that he would have put Finn at one of these end of one of these damn movies, but he never did. I'll do a, a fan cut where where it just says Finn just for you, Vaughn. Yeah. I'll make that happen yeah, for you. It's like what though, but. <laughs> But like, yeah, he's she's doomed to stay in this world regardless of how hard she tries to get out of it. You know what I mean? Yep. And mm-hmm. I just I I like that. I I understand Evans' kind of misgivings for the first film and why he didn't like it. Um, I don't. It is sort of mean spirited. Night uh, Nightbirds is straightforward, straightforward, mean spirited. Yeah, and you can definitely tell the director has this kind of hatred for women or has some kind of fucking bad opinion on women, and that's why he treats the character D as this kind of um, this man eater. You know what I mean? Um, yes. But in this film, it feels like he he's taking another kind of symptom from real life, from his real life around him. You know? Oh yeah, I mean? he's, like he's he's basically saying in Nightbirds, he's saying you know you're going to get screwed by evil people and in this movie you're going to get screwed by god you know an act of god by life by By life life, itself you know you thought you were gonna you thought you had something and then this car Mm -hmm. comes and kills 
Yep. Life is dog eat dog. The, the thing that I really love about this movie, yeah. and this is why I asked you, Vaughn, if you really felt that the drag queen element was there just for shock for shock's sake, yeah. is that um, like Vapors, this movie does not judge its characters, even though there are people that may not approve of others' lifestyles within it. Yeah. Um, Milligan allows its characters to be who they are without reducing them to comedic elements. No, you're right. And and drag queens usually in movies of this era and even up until probably the last 15 years were always used as a comedic element as less than and cherry in no way until there's that one sequence where um, she's with a John and he accidentally, you know, tears uh, Cherry's wig off and, and we see Cherry's an older man yep. and he, you know, tells him, get the fuck out of here at no point. And then it, which is, I think, one of the best scenes in the whole movie right. uh, is the only scene where we see Cherry, who's usually this really strong willed, optimistic, happy go lucky person, mm-hmm. break down and feel sorry for themselves. And uh, I, that sequence, Neil Flanagan, again, just like we said with uh, Guru the Mad Monk, Neil Flanagan is a phenomenal actor. Yes. I don't when know. You give the opportunity to give him something worthwhile. He kills it in this sequence where the John reduces him back to, oh, you took my armor off me. Because, you know, I mean, that's essentially what yeah. his his outfit is, is like the armor that allows him to be the person he truly feels that he is. Right. And it rips that wig off and you see maybe Cherry's just a fragile old man. Yeah. Um, that scene where he's sitting there in the kitchen crying to uh, Dusty, who can't believe what she's hearing, is incredibly tender and real. Yeah. No, sure um, in no. Most movies of this ilk, especially if they're stroke flicks. Yeah. I mean, this is in, in one element because of the hardcore sections is definitely a stroke flick. Yeah. Um, you would never get that kind of humanity with these types of characters. No. And that's what I take away from with Flesh Pop more than any of them. And what makes it perhaps my favorite of all of Milligan's movies is that there's a humanity running through this movie that's not present in most of the other stuff. I'm going to back you up on that. I feel that he respects every character he writes. Even how freaking flim flam and ridiculous they are, I feel that when he puts when he puts the world together and he gives these actors their characters and he lets them run through, it feels like everybody, even though they all hate each other most of the time or want to kill each other most of the time, they all feel like people in the real in a real world situation. Even though I know sometimes it's completely insane, um, like the rats are coming, um, but all those characters feel like somebody within a world that this madman has conducted. You know what I mean? And he respects them, even though he wants to kill them all. Just before we get off of uh, Neil Flanagan. Um, oh, you get off him. <laughs> before we get <laughs> off of him. Yeah. So do you think that, I mean, it's uh, it's supposed to be obvious, right? To the audience completely that this is a drag yeah. queen. Oh, of because course. The, oh, yeah, of the poster credits him as Lynn Flanagan. I think even on the copy that I saw, I think it says Lynn Flanagan on it. I just, I, I, you know, because... 
I, I laughed when the when the guy pulled off pulled off his wig, and then I was like, "What?" <laughs> Didn't he? But know? that's another reason why I feel that he was doing this to freak people out. Hmm. Is because if he's going to put, he's going to make the character, the actor, change his name on the on the on the on the title cards, and especially on the posters. It's definitely a it's definitely a plot where it's like, oh, we're going to go in and see this skin flick, and we're going to see you know we're going to see an, a dude in drag, and it's going to freak out a quarter of the of the company, and people are going to walk out because they're going to like. Oh. But at this time, how shocking really was it when Pink Flamingos had come out the year before? But who knows? And Divine was an entity. Yeah, but who knows? But you know, you know how people are. Fucking people are so kind of sheltered that you know, especially fucking the Raincoat Brigade, they're not going out to see Pink fucking Flamingos. They're just going out to see whatever fucking boner films they can find. And they're they're, they're watching a film where like you blatantly see the same actress who was in Force Entry the next year um, in this film. And you're like, oh, yeah, I like that film. That was fucking horrifying. Um, Let's go watch this thing. And you see a guy get his wig ripped off and he's sitting there crying at a kitchen table. Definitely his his hard ons going straight down and back into his pants. You know what I mean? And that's and that's what it feels. I just to me that's why it just feels like he was just trying to like let me freak some people out, man. Like yeah, let's fuck them up. I'm sure that's part of it. I'm sure that's part of it. It's subversive. Yeah. At that time, it's subversive. Yeah. Um, looking at it now, because a lot of this has been normalized, right? It doesn't feel as subversive. So okay. I think right. I think you're right to an extent. I think you're right to an extent. But ha- even having said that, there's much respect given to the cherry character no, right. and the other characters mm-hmm. in this film that even John Waters <laughs> didn't give because his characters are so over the top yeah. that they're comedic, mm-hmm. that they're kind of almost reduced to, to you know, comedic elements, no. even though he obviously respected all of the people that were in his movies yep. and his movies were about the outsider. Yeah. There's, there was something that just felt, I mean, this is of all of the movies as fly on the wall as I think Milligan got like this almost felt like I was watching a documentary at times. Oh, I love those. The scene that is so much uh, scenes of New York. Um, oh, yeah. In the beginning, you know, going at, going down 42nd Street and they're mm-hmm. out in the streets and. Like, like you said, Vaughn, where you got people walking by, there's a scene where, uh, Dusty and Bob are in the back of a, a cab and of course Milligan's, you know, like in the front seat shooting them. So they're tight right up against the lens, but you look out the back window and there's two dudes talking in the car behind them. And like one of the guys like do, talking with his hands and I'm like, wow, those, that's pretty cool. Like those, those, those are two real people having a conversation. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that he just caught. Um, yeah, this one was much more engaging because of there was a lot of a lot of characters and a lot of different locations and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's constantly moving. The only thing that wouldn't fly now is the reoccurring racist joke. Three times. That yeah. Three times that Candy kept bringing up. Yeah, what the heck? If, if you cut that motherfucker out of there, this movie would be perfect. There's no that is shock for shock's sake. Yeah. Even though it does come out at a time where that was far more normal language. Right. Mm-hmm. It's still it's so out of nowhere. And it is obviously used as a reoccurring joke. Yeah, definitely. Even one of the characters even says, I think she, she says, you need some new material. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as we had talked about uh, before we, we got into actually describing this movie, there are multiple cuts of this movie. Uh, this was filmed with hardcore porno actors, Harry Reams and uh, Fred Lincoln and Dusty, played by Laura Cannon, all were adult actor uh, actors at some point. Yep. That's why I wanted to talk to you about. So so all of the hardcore scenes, are they just strictly the Harry Ream scenes? Uh, yes. That's the only one that I remember seeing, you know, angles and, you know, <laughs> um, you know, lit, lit, you know, so that you could see. Um, in fact, it may have been only one. No, no. I think it's two because she goes back to him. Um, yep. So, yeah, it's two scenes with Harry Reams. Well, again, again, she was in forced entry with Harry Reams the next year. So it kind of like maybe these probably probably were made probably around the same time um, and just released in two different years. Very well could be. And I, I'm sure uh, when he got Harry Reams to be in this movie, I'm sure, you know, producers were just like, oh, well, we could cross market this to two separate you know, segments of the population on 42nd street. We, these can play the porno theaters and these can play the regular yeah. theaters. Milligan yeah. crossed over into porno for one movie. <laughs> as far as we know, we don't know if some of the lost movies were actually pornos. We have no, I mean, Vaughn, do you know anything about that? Did he make more porno than this? No, I don't. I haven't, I haven't found anything. No, this is the only one that alleged is porno, which is just the two porn actresses having sex with each other, which is like, okay, fine <laughs> you know what i mean there's an there's yeah. another cut on on this uh blu-ray that's 1.85 to 1 and it's mm. just blown up and they say uh they say in the beginning that it was probably to cover up some of the uh, explicit content oh yeah interesting but it, i started watching that one and it also cuts the tops of people's heads off so Okay, so this is another thing that I wanted to talk about is that some of this is probably to actually show people in the fucking frame. Yeah. There's there the camera work. If I'm going to say anything about this movie that was bad, the camera work work is just downright awful in this movie. There are whole scenes where we just see the tops of people's heads at the bottom of the frame through an entire fucking conversation. I can live with it. Oh Jesus Christ! It's so fucking bad. It's so bad. There, I, the, even though this feels real and there's so much to love about this movie, holy shit! Some of this is lazy as fuck. It's so weird. Maybe he just has a certain amount of bandwidth. You know, he can either focus on, you know, getting more than two people in a frame, or he can focus on. <laughs> framing i guess i mean like he he just can't do everything well at once <laughs> it's it's like the old adage and I, I i was told this very early on in my career Derek, never deliver a perfect piece <laughs> always fuck up just one thing that way they don't focus on any other imperfections they just go to that one glaringly obvious thing and tell you well just fix this and then the rest of it's fine <laughs> and I think that is like <laughs> you get your cuts through, you get what you want through. If you just put one glaringly obvious faux pas in the piece and then for Milligan this time, holy shit, 
how do you not put people's faces in the fucking frame? <laughs> I mean, come on, this isn't this isn't different. This isn't odd. He has had films where it's just the person, the top of the person, the head of the person with a whole bunch of background and just the guy's head as you as you're talking. So this isn't any different. Um, but I, but I, like I said, I, I like the scenes where she where they're stuck in the city when they're walking through the city and they're walking through crowds and it's clearly these people don't give a shit like that he's taking he's filming them as these nope, other people another people, person which I, I i love that i love those scenes where especially you know when they're walking through the streets and it's just it's so kind of slice of life type of shit mm-hmm. that really is interesting as hell and you know you get the like the movie you get the movie houses and stuff like that the porno theaters that they walk past and you know the like the, the businesses and it just looks kind of drab and run down because it was early 70s and new york was a fucking squabble uh hovel back then so it's Mm. like it just looked really it really looks great the child's it's a time capsule yeah Yeah. definitely it's definitely a time capsule of a new york that no longer exists yep so if you want to see that dangerous ugly new york flesh pod is definitely your movie um again the house from staten island makes an appearance. Harry Reem's house is the same house that we saw in Blood last episode. Mm. So uh, if you guys didn't notice, go back and take a look. Again, Milligan uses one location for all of his movies over and over and over and over again. But uh, other than that, holy shit, this is my favorite Andy Milligan movie that I've seen up until this point. Uh, if you're going to dig out anything to check out first, this one, I think, has the best acting, has the most engaging actors uh, and people and characters. Uh, the characters have a lot of humanity. Some of them may be awful people. Most of them are very awful people. But this movie flies by, absolutely flies by because you were engaged in, as Vaughn had said before, the dusty character, even though she may not be a good person, she definitely wants to be. And there's a humanity in her, even as a scumbag, that makes you root for her and makes the ending all the more sad when it finally happens. So for me, highest recommendation of Flesh Pot on 42nd Street. Vaughn, final thoughts on this thing. Uh, yeah, like the atmosphere and the characters and the fact that it's just, it's in this weird period in his filmmaking too. Um, where it's just like, it's another film where it's just, you, you walk into this and you go, oh, this is a really great film. This is an interesting film for this, for the time. And then you go back and you look at the rest of his work and you go, Ugh. uh, <laughs> but I, I like, <laughs> what the fuck happened? Yeah. <laughs> But I, I love this film. I, I really do. And, and I'm very happy that, that it's out there on Blu-ray uh, through Vinegar Syndrome. Um, and that you can actually go pick it up anytime, you know, and it's, it's, it's well worth checking out. It's definitely on the top. It's definitely top five for me in, in my uh, overall love of his films. And, and I haven't seen, I, I only seen the unrated, the, the rated cut, the girls of 42nd street version. Um, I actually want to see, I mean, like, it's not giving me much. It's just giving me Harry Reem's dick. So it's like, I'm not really going to like, oh my God, I got to see that again. I've seen that enough times. Uh, <laughs> well, that's why I didn't go and search out for it. It's yeah. like, uh, d- am I really missing all that much? If you I'm just see- missing hairy ass crack and balls. I'm sure that's all I'm missing. <laughs> yes. Like uh, like uh, Derek said, it's on, Prime. it's on Prime, but if you don't want to pay for it, it's 
there is a copy of it, the Girls of Forty Second Street version of it on archive.org, which is actually a really good, really good print. It looks really beautiful. Is up. it? Is yeah. it? Is it in HD though? Um, I, well, it looks like it's from an, an old thirty-five millimeter print, and it looks like it's been like well used. You know what I mean? Uh huh. Yeah. It, well, I know the version that's up on Amazon is pretty scratched up yeah, but it is an hd up. it looks it looks wonderful it looks great the copy that's an archive i don't know if, if somebody took it before it got released and just put that out there um but it's on archive it's it's a pretty good copy of the film um but yeah it's definitely worth checking out especially this and these two films are worth checking out together so evan final thoughts this is uh yeah one of the best ones we've seen I wouldn't put it as high as vapors or seeds, but it's it's definitely like you said, it flies by. It's actually, you know, I started watching it and I was like, oh, I don't want to get into this again. This, you know, terrible person. But then it, you you get pulled in uh, pretty quick, you know, and, and you start uh, empathizing with the character. And then there's just so much else happening that, you know, you, you stay interested. So this is a good one. Um, I the ending blows you know i don't care about milligan's fatalism you know (laughs) thrown in there which is definitely a thing yeah he's like he could have just ended that normally and had and had her character have this redemption arc and it would have been a perfect movie like not a perfect movie it would have been fine it didn't need milligan's cynicism thrown in at the end i just feel like that's not part of the it doesn't cohere with the arc of the rest of the movie. I don't think that the movie is about the fact that you can't, you know, get out of the terrible situation that you might be in. I think that's interesting because I do. I do feel like over and over again, this movie reminds you that no matter how hard you try, the street's going to always bring you back to Mm it. I kind of, I've, there's I mean, there's multiple instances, and I think uh, the part that kind of, you know, clues you into that is the scene where she comes back to the city, comes back to the city after, you know, the failed gangbang and then at, uh, eavesdrops on th- Cherry throwing her completely under the bus. Right. And she loses. A, 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 not only is she dejected by you know, being talked into doing this thing that she no longer felt in her heart she needed to do. The person that talked her into it threw her under the bus and really truly doesn't care about her either. So I, I at least I thought it, that's why the ending didn't really surprise me all that much, that the whole film constantly is just no matter how far and how high up she climbs, something's always going to kick her straight back down to the fucking dirt because she's from the street. Yep. And that's what makes it awesome. And look at your life. Look at your life and compare it to hers and feel great because you're not as shitty as she. <laughs> from my perspective, especially after watching all this Milligan, it to me, it's the only way the move I was waiting for it to happen. Oh, me too. I knew at some point Milligan was going to pull me that. Too. I wasn't, so you never felt that way. I Evan? was surprised. I wasn't surprised that it happened, but I still flipped off the screen when it happened. I was like, son <laughs> of a bitch. Why did you do that? <laughs> I was 
See, when I when I yeah, when I watched this, I was I was like, I'm like, oh, this yeah. is getting to the end, and it's really really good ending. What the fuck? And then it just that like it pokes you right in the eye with a stick. It's like, oh, right there, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Like, it's like son of a bitch, and I'm just like, <laughs> oh, oh thank God, great. Milligan God. kicked me in the fucking balls I again. Would, I think if there's anything, if it, one of the defining traits of a Milligan movie, if this isn't in a Milligan movie, if you don't have someone who's getting their hands cut off, there's not a goddamn Quasimodo. And if there's not a completely awful bad ending, it's not really a Milligan movie, is it? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> so um, thumbs up from from the crew here on Astro Radio Z. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, my guests are going to show their fucking ever-loving ass off, and we're going to talk about the next episode coming up. We only have three more of these Andy Milligan episodes left, so uh, prepare yourselves. No. Stick around. Stingline here, Squib Central, coming right back at you. Today I decided to cover a flick that um, I've watched a couple times before, um, and uh, I think it's pretty pretty incredible. So I figured, you know, since I don't really hear people talk about it too much outside of my weird little circle of VHS collector friends, um, I figured I would talk about it here in this podcast, because if you like 80s action films, you pretty much need to see this. Um, the movie I'm referring to is called Rock House, uh, and basically uh, the tagline is, they killed his wife and pushed him beyond the law. He's about to settle the score. Um, and the cover basically has you know, a car driving away from an explosion, and then it has the the main actor who also happens to be the director, whose name is Jack Vasek. Um, he was also uh, the director of the movie called The Junk Man from 1982, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and he also uh, was the cinematographer on the original Gone in 60 Seconds film from the early 70s. Uh, which is which is interesting. Um, it's a fun film, and I actually really like the Nicolas Cage remake, um, but that's a, sort of an aside. Anywho, um, so the tagline's amazing. The cover, of course, has him on it. He's got the uh, Magnum P.I. mustache. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what else to say about it. You know, The back cover has him holding an M16 with a grenade launcher, of course, because why not? Um, this movie is also called Deadly Addiction, so you may see that title out there. Um, if you want to see this flick, uh, it is available to watch on YouTube as well. Um, you know, YouTube is a good treasure trove of stuff like this. But if you want to, you can easily track down a copy of this film on tape for relatively cheap. It's not as expensive as a lot of other uh, movies that are kind of 
stuck in the VHS format tend to be these days. But anyways, talking about the movies. So when I think of 1980s action movies, I think of montages. I think of chicks with big poofy hair who are wearing skimpy clothing. Uh, I think of guys with mustaches and mullets. I think of squibs, of course, tons of squibs. I think of explosions. You always have to have that one crazy villain. Uh, he always has to look like he, you know, is covered in some kind of like oil, like motor oil and like sweat constantly. Um, it helps if he has a mullet that's somehow spiky on top. Uh, and almost always, you know, you have guys wearing leather jackets. That's how you know they're the toughest. And uh, you also know that they can afford a leather jacket. So that means they have at least a few bucks. Um, he also has to have, have to have rather um, some vaguely, ethnic henchmen uh who you know are very stereotypical in the way they talk and uh the way they act and uh, gosh you know there's all, also always like you know a random kid who's a hero there's also a random dog who happens to be a hero um those are those are kind of the things i think about when i think about 80s action movies and uh rock house has all of those things and and more i mean literally every action movie cliche that you can think of for the 1980s is in this movie. Um, it's basically like a longer episode of Miami Vice um, or maybe like a really, really watered down lethal weapon, but not a buddy cop flick, really, because it's one guy. Uh, and it's a revenge movie. I mean, so, you know, it's it's pretty ridiculous. But basically the plot, you know, his, you know, they got this guy named Turner, who's Jack Vasek, the director. He is a cop. He's a hard-nosed cop. He goes after some drug dealers. He ends up basically busting a dr big drug den, saving some kid's life. Uh, and he gets suspended from the force because, you know, of course, because why not? Because all these cops always get suspended in 1980s action movies. Um, and he gets suspended because he doesn't follow the proper protocol as set forth by the police department, of course. So um, one of the main bad guys in this flick I want to mention, too, is in a really fantastic horror movie called Heckle Lantern. Um, and that guy is Gregory Scott Cummins. If you haven't seen Heckle Lantern, definitely watch it. Pretty, pretty hilarious bad horror movie, uh, I think from around the same time, maybe, maybe 88, 89, I can't remember, but anywho, um, so, uh, you know, basically he goes to war with these drug dealers and eventually his, his wife gets murdered by him. So of course he's on, he's on revenge, you know, he wants to, you know, he wants to get him. Uh, so somewhere in that process, he's going after all these guys and they frame him, uh, they frame him for a murder. Uh, and so Turner basically ends up, you know, uh, having to clear that up while simultaneously chasing after these guys. Again, that's another, you know, typical thing that's found in like pretty much every action movie. Um, God, what else? So, you know, basically, the, you know, there's not much of a plot here, honestly. It's hard to, I mean, there is and there isn't. I mean, basically the movie is him chasing these guys around, killing them. I think there's at least four car chases and they're all pretty good, um, including, uh, you know, Turner drives uh, some kind of fancy car. I don't even remember what kind it is. I'm not a car guy, but it gets blown up. Um, and of course, Turner lives in a fucking houseboat, which again, made me automatically think of like Lethal Weapon. I think he didn't live in a houseboat, but he lived on the beach and 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 yeah, he being uh, Mel Gibson. But, you know, it just reminded me of that super hard. Like you see that scene, uh, you see the scene where his houseboat is and you're like, oh man, I'm just, I'm just thinking of Lethal Weapon right now. They have almost the exact same hair. So, but um, in any event, I'm jumping around here because there's so, this movie is dense with, with you know, 
80s-isms. There's all kinds of like weird little one-liners, all kinds of stuff that's, you know, funny, but you're not sure if it's intentionally funny. Like um, there's a scene where some of the bad guys are eating oysters and they're just talking about how oysters get them hard and shit. <laughs> and like, uh, it's just absurd. There's a couple strip club scenes. Um, so, of course, when you cross over into showing boobs in a the movie, then it stops being an episode of Magnum P.I. But that's essentially what this is up till that point, a slightly more violent Magnum P.I. episode. Um, gosh, what else can I say? You know, there's a dog in it, of course, and he's friendly with the dog. He, in fact, he gives the dog to his ki- this kid he saved from the, from the drug den at the beginning. And that kid is living with, um, I'm not sure if it was the kid's mom or if it's some other lady that he met. But um, after his wife gets killed, I feel like it's a grand total of like maybe 20 minutes before he's banging that chick. Uh, uh, so, you know, so basically anyways, where this is going, you know you know where this is going. This is going to come to a head. There's going to be a shootout. And of course there is. There's a giant shootout at the end and another action movie cliche, which ends up being uh, they're at a industrial park, you know, it's a giant, like, you know, it could be like the same industrial park from Robocop for all I know, you know, but this takes place in Los Angeles instead of Detroit. So there's a shootout there. And of course, you know, a bunch of bad guys get killed. You know, there's a bunch of, uh, bunch of explosions. Um, of course, somehow, uh, Turner has a fucking M16 with a grenade launcher in it, which I think is just, you know, it seems like almost every action movie you see from that time period has that. So, um, it's pretty hilarious, but, uh, you know, it's it's hard for me to even sum it up. I mean, it's it's a good happy ending. I don't want to ruin it for you, but you probably know where this is going. Uh, so I think you should see it, uh, basically because you know if you like eighties action movies and you just can't get enough of it. Which I mean, if you've listened this far into the podcast, I really hope you enjoy eighties action movies because that's kind of you know. Uh, action movies is what I'm obviously covering and, and the eighties action movies tend to be my favorite. There's a lot of really good nineties ones too, but the eighties just kind of set the bar really high, you know, in my opinion. And while this film, I can't say is on the same level as like, you know, lethal weapon or, you know, predator or something like that. I mean, it doesn't have really its own identity all that much. Um, and it doesn't have the same high level of action with that said, there's, there's so much hilarity to see in this thing. If you, if you watch it really intently, um, just, you know, just the way everything looks, the soundtrack sounds like Miami vice, you know, the clothes are just, it's just dead set eighties. The bad guys are dead set eighties, you know? Uh, and like I mentioned, all the cliches, they're all here. So if you, if you ever decide, man, I just want to watch a really cliche action movie from the eighties, or if you want to show someone like you, maybe you have a kid who's like, you know, 12 or 13 and, and he doesn't understand why he doesn't understand why you, he or she doesn't understand why you, you know, like all these shitty movies from the eighties and, and what the appeal is. You could show him this flick and be like, this is the 1980s in, in a single, you know, dose. This is exactly what I think of when I think of an eighties action flick. So, uh, so you can give that to them. It'd be a good, good, good gift for them. Good, uh, good discussion to have, you know, get them, get them ready so that when you're dead someday, they're going to be like, yeah, my dad showed me eighties action movies when I was a kid. And I remember rock house and how hilarious it was. And it is, it's really, really funny, but I think some of it's intentional, some of it's not. Um, and the things that are funny now probably aren't the things that should have been funny back then. So, so anyways, I would say it's quite enjoyable. You should definitely, definitely spend some time with it. Sit down, go watch it on YouTube or, or buy a copy on VHS. If you're a nerd like me and you still collect VHS in the year 2019. Um, so yeah, so that's all there is to that. Uh, I just wanted to 
talk about this thing. Um, tune in again. Hopefully, I'll get to do another episode of this, and you guys will get to listen. I've got you know a list of flicks for for plenty of plenty of years ahead that I could ramble on about. So, thanks for listening.
You are listening to Astro Radio Z. Oh, man. So coming up, I think we had talked about it earlier. Uh We're coming to the movies that I haven't seen before. Well, the two ones are coming up. Yeah. I have three episodes. We have three episodes coming up. The next episode, folks, we're going to be talking about Legacy of Blood, which I believe is the remake of the Ghastly Ones. Yes. And Carnage, which I haven't seen before. Then we have two more episodes after that, Monstrosity and the Weirdo, which Vaughn and I have talked about the Weirdo on his podcast in the past. Go check it out at Motion Picture Massacre to hear us go off for a while on that. Uh, but you otherwise just stick around here. You can check it out on this podcast. Or yeah. in our last one will be Surgical and the Man with Two Heads. And I haven't seen three of these movies. Have you boys seen all of these movies? Yes. I have only yes, seen have. Monstrosity. Yes, I have. Ugh. So having said that, Evan, we're past the midway point. We're on the home stretch, as one would say. How are you now feeling about Andy Milligan? <laughs> oh, this is <laughs> oh, this is such a hard question. Uh, yeah, remember you wanted this. Remember I that. did you want wanted this. all this. Um I like I said, I think that you know, watching all of these in a row and studying this guy as a guy, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't feel that it doesn't seem like a guy that you'd want to be friends with, you know, or to, <laughs> to, <laughs> I mean, he obviously made a lot of shit. Um, but at least that stuff was kind of funny. Um, but, but when you see him actually put his, you know, dr- drama into the, into the movie. It's, you know, when he actually writes a good script, you know, it, it shows that he's, he's a, he's a miserable bastard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm excited about actually getting to these last ones. Cause I, re- I remember really liking Must- monstrosity. I thought it was a really goofy, fun movie. We'll see. Well, if I'm going to say anything about what we have coming up, we no longer go back to drama, Milligan. Yeah, it's all monster. It is Monsterville. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, you know, you got the drama. The weirdos is a great drama. It's one. It's like right next to Tom's <laughs> Wolf. <laughs> Fucking piece of shit. The weirdo. The beginning. Yeah, can't wait. Ugh. Never. And thank God he never. Thank God he got died before he got to make the sequel. The weirdo, the middle movie. I don't know the fucking crazy. Uh, I'm I'm so glad I get to watch this for the third or fourth time <laughs> that I've seen it. Yeah, because I definitely needed to do that in my life. Yeah, ugh. let's watch the weirdo this much. Well, you must be getting excited, Derek, to be done with this guy. Yeah, oh, I can't even begin to illustrate and explain to you the level of excitement I have mm-hmm. that we only have three more of these episodes <laughs> yep. left. Mm-hmm. I can then put Milligan in the rear view mirror for the rest of my life and never watch any of these movies again. Now, having said that I have discovered some good movies in here. Yep. See, I mean, I we got to be very relative about that term. Yeah. Good. Right. <laughs> but what? I mean, Fleshpot on 42nd Street in Vapors, mm-hmm. genuinely good movies. Yep. Yeah. Nightbirds, a good movie, but not something I'll necessarily watch all that often. But Fleshpot and Vapors, actual good movies. What are you talking about? Nightbirds is a film I show my family on Thanksgiving every year. No, oh, man. Dude. That, that's not fucking true. Is no, it? no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> 
And you can it can make it all makes sense now. And then what's happening to me right now that that was true, Christ. Uh, oh, God, man. Uh, uh, before we all want to jump in front of uh, a car oh. just like Harry Reams, let's uh, get to the portion of the show where we shamelessly shill the fuck out of our listeners. Vaughn, shill your ass off. All right. Uh, I do the same thing we do here just by myself. Um, talking about cult films and horror films and exploitation films and genre film. Uh, motionpicturemassacre.wordpress.com is motionpicturemassacre.wordpress.com. I know it's a long fucking title. I don't know. I, I don't know what I was thinking 15 years ago, but I kept with it. If you like this show and you like to hear my dumb voice, listen to that show. <laughs> you should go listen to his dumb voice. It's worthwhile. And give him one star ratings on iTunes. Is that even a thing anymore? Uh, do people do ratings on iTunes? Yeah, occasionally. I know that Evan gave me one, which is great. Um, I, you know, but I don't know. I don't know why they're even like all those fucking apps are like that now. It's like, leave a review. Leave a this. It's like, oh my God. No one's really reading the reviews. No. No, I'm, nobody. I don't I, even think nobody's iTunes re- is a program anymore. I still, it's Apple Podcast. Oh, okay. Well, I haven't downloaded the latest update for iTunes yet, so I don't know if it's a, if it'll blow it up if I actually do it. Uh, well, uh, I've even though I have like a tag at the end of every Astro Radio Z episode, you do. I don't beg people for reviews. I don't. I. I. I don't think I've even gotten a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever the fuck it is mm-hmm. for years. Yeah. If you if you want to go review my my show, knock yourself out. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't give a fuck. But it's important you go give Vaughn a one star review. It's the only way he survives. Please. in this cold, cruel world. Please, 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 please. Oh, and <laughs> so and also, yeah. Oh, if, if you're part of the all the gimmicks group, uh, yeah, get in there and have fun, please, because we're having a rip roaring time now with the uh, horror draft, which. Oh, thank God, Blade Braxton finally picked within the three hours we were recording the show. He finally picked. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I cannot believe how Lords of the Flyish it's getting in all the gimmicks group, folks. If you don't know what Vaughn's talking about, way back in the day, Seth Powellin, who I obviously do the all the gimmicks podcast with and has been a frequent contributor here on Astro Radio Z, him and I used to be frequenters of the bloody disgusting message boards when bloody disgusting first started back in like 98, 99. And we would be part of these things called the horror draft where a group of people would get together. We'd hold like a fantasy draft where people each round would pick one horror movie. Then at the end of it, we'd have 10 movies and we'd have to pit our 10 movies up against other people's 10 movies and there could only like the Highlander. There can only be one. We'd go down a bracket system and fight to the deaths and everyone had to vote who had the best, definitely a popularity contest, Mm -hmm. but it was always fun because you got to find out who were the assholes and who weren't the assholes and who were the fucking horror posers. You find that out real quick with these goddamn horror drafts. So we decided to resurrect it in all the gimmicks group. Yeah. And right now we're only halfway through, almost halfway through the draft. And oh boy, if people don't vote or don't sit and pick their movie within 20 minutes, the entire group goes <laughs> ape fucking shit. 
They're they're looking to eat people's eyeballs out and rip arms off and and beat them on the ground and write their names in blood on the street. I cannot fucking believe how crazy it's getting in that group. Uh, I am definitely the top one in that. I think me and Miss Angelique Bone are, are up there. Um, screaming and yelling for people to do to do their fucking picks. <laughs> I don't know. Mary right now is oh, getting out there and getting pretty feisty in that group. Yeah, she's pretty bad too. My God. <laughs> so if you if you want to go see the Bedlam, go over to the, all the gimmicks group and uh, take a fly on the wall seat and just watch the bedlam happen because boy it's just starting to get good you just wait until after the fifth round vaughn when people start (laughs) trying to pick good movies and most of them don't have the deep knowledge of good like underground horror movies oh boy it's gonna get funny Uh it's gonna get funny so i can't wait for that uh evan is there anything you want to say at the end of this show? Parting words, because I know you never have anything to show. So I'm not going to give you the opportunity to show. Fuck your show opportunity. Any parting words for my listeners? Um, I watched Sallow for the first time in the past. Oh, week. Oh, oh, my God. That's the best thing ever. Uh, what did you think of Sallow? I loved it. Oh my god. Oh, yeah, listen to this one. He's a hardened ghoul. The guy did not like Nightbirds. Oh, I'm- oh no, I hated this movie. This movie is just so depressing. But love Sallow. Uh, I watched it hey, twice. Hey, me and you, if I if you were standing right next to me, I would have gave you a high five. Uh. <laughs> Evan is a hardcore ghoul. Never knew it. Hardcore fucking ghoul. He sits every night shits on a plate gets his fork and knives out and just eats it so daintily like like it's a fucking delicatessen oh Oh my god that's fucking funny so what made you did you get the criterion release what was the reason you this thing years ago and i just never watched it because i was gonna watch it with somebody and they just never (laughs) how do you bring this up you used to tell me hey you want to watch solo with me do you you don't bring this out for dates do you no no this was just a friend of mine we were we were (laughs) planning on watching this and just it just never happened and so i was like in the mood i was like second date you know you get him over and you you show him your movie collection you pull this sucker out and you're like let's sit down hey baby hey baby i got i got a bottle of uh key and tea over here and uh i i'm gonna strike up some you know, candles around the house. How about yeah. we sit down and pop this nice little Italian picture in here? Sallow. Yeah. You're going to really like this one. <laughs> Endless stories of, of children being raped and <laughs> shit eating. And- yeah. <laughs> and, and lovely story, lovely, lovely stories of horrors talking about how they've been abused uh, over the years in their job. Yeah. <laughs> it's filmmaker unceremoniously killed by the mob soon after it's right after this right (laughs) no i just said oh that is that is the best heel turn i've seen on my show in a long long time i love it i love it i can't wait to see how dark you get on the next episode (laughs) we'll see next next you're gonna start telling me that you pull out fucking serbian film for laughs no that i watched that too that sucked i did not like that movie (laughs) good good you still have the inklings of a soul i do there's something there (laughs) oh great and on that note folks thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time You can 
find Astro Radio Z on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and anywhere that podcasts are found. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and email us questions, concerns, or just general chatter at astroradiozpodcast at gmail.com. You want to hear more than just the regular show? Go over to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash all the gimmicks and get not only bonus episodes of Astro Radio Z, but other podcasts like All the Gimmicks, all for the low price of $1 a month. Coming for me, Derek Carey. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.